Word of God and uh, come with me please to Galatians chapter 6. If you've got your Bible or your tablet or your phone, whatever your instrument you're using this morning for the Word, and uh, you come with me to Galatians chapter 6, and then we'll get right to it. Just want to read verse 14, and then we'll pray together. Galatians 6, 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, this morning we open the word of God and we pray that the Holy Spirit, the author of his word, will enlighten our hearts, will encourage us and strengthen us and remind us again of the absolute importance of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and our eyes this morning. Let us ears hear, let our eyes see, and let us be encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. The heart of Christianity is the Bible. The heart of the Bible is Christ, and the heart of Christ's message is the gospel. And at the heart of Christ's gospel is the cross. The cross is central to the Christian faith. Take the cross out of the Christian faith, and it's just another religion. But the cross makes it so very, very different. The book of Isaiah is like the Bible in in condensed form, in miniature. The Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. And the first 39 books of the Bible represents the Old Testament, and the last 27 books represents the New Testament. And in Isaiah, the first 39 chapters speak of sin and judgment and the wrath of God, But the last 27 speak of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And chapter 40 is the turning point where it says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Now the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, if that represents Isaiah's New Testament, say, then the center of the New Testament, of course, is the cross. So if you take the first 39 chapters of Isaiah and then take up to chapter 14 uh, of the last 27 chapters of Isaiah. So 39 and 14, that makes exactly 53. And what does Isaiah 53 say? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And so the cross is central to everything that we believe. It's at the heart of all God's dealings with men. God will deal with man at the cross. If we're ever going to see our lives changed, if we're ever going to believe that God's going to do something to change our life, it's got to start at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me share this morning just some things regarding the cross because there's only a couple of more weeks to Easter Sunday. And so for the next two Sundays, I want to share about events of the cross. And then, of course, we'll come to the resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. 
First of all, it's the great divider. It marks the boundary line between, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. It challenges men to decide, which kingdom am I going to live for? It has to be one or the other. There is no middle ground here. There's no neutrality with Christ. Now there's some people say, well, well, I'm neither for or against Christ. I'm neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ. Well, you can't be. Because Jesus says, if you're not for me, then you are against me. And so sides have to be taken. A line is drawn and we have to decide which part are we on. And so the great divider, the cross, is the battleground in which God and the devil fight for the sovereignty of men's very precious souls. And it divides men into two classes, either lost or found, one or the other. You cannot be in the middle. It's one or the other. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus in verse 32 says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then he says something a little, seems a little strange to the ear. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be of those of his own household. He who loves, loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be of his own household. Now, let me say what that's not saying, first of all. It's not saying that whenever we become Christians, believers in Christ, that we deliberately, consciously go out of our way to make enemies of our family. Not saying that at all. But what it is saying is there going to be occasions whenever we become believers and our family will be upset. It will bring a sword. It will bring conflict into the family situation, whether that's a father and a son or a mother or a daughter, whatever the case may be. It's going to bring a sword. It will bring conflict. Now, you and I may be very blessed that that didn't happen to us, but it happens to many people. And particularly if, we who live in the Western world perhaps don't suffer this the same. But if you were a Muslim and if you were a Hindu or a Jew or if you were a Buddhist and you became a Christian, then almost immediately you would see a sword coming into your family. Immediately you would be faced with conflict and perhaps they would disavow you and disown you, feeling that you're dishonoring them and their religion. Uh, and perhaps a literal sword would come into that family situation where they would actually literally kill you because you became a believer. That's happened all over the world, even to this very day. It's been happening. So Jesus, when he said, I've come to bring a sword 
That's what he's talking about. And you know, he had opposition from his family. Don't you know that? You remember one time his brother said to him, he says, we're going up to the feast. Won't you come up to the feast with us to show yourself? You know, they're very sarcastic in saying this. In other words, you know, you think you're the Messiah. Well, come and prove it. No better time than at the feast to show yourself as the Messiah. So Jesus felt that opposition. In fact, for the first 33 years of Jesus' life, whenever he was on earth, not one of his family, not one of his brothers or sisters believed that he was the Son of God or even believed that he was the Messiah of God. Not one of them. It was only after the resurrection that that actually literally happened. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To some, the message of the cross is just foolishness. But to those of us who are saved, it's the power of God. You know, I was thinking of Brother Wilson Archer and how that every Easter time, in fact, he couldn't do it this past two Easter's because of the pandemic, but every Easter, he, he, he gets his big cross, that big wooden cross, and he stands out in the streets of Moira as a testimony and a witness to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not everybody is for that. Yes, there are many who will drive past or who will stop past and say, more power to you, you're doing a great job, keep at it. You know, it's a great testimony, your witness you're doing. But there's others who don't like it. In fact, some who drive past, and he told me this, some who drive past, instead of giving the thumbs up, they give another signal, which is very rude and not very nice. There's some actually who would actually stand against him. Believe it or not, believe it or not, sometimes it's a Christian <laughs> and that sword comes. You know, so the cross always causes some kind of conflict with people. It's just the way that it is. So it's the great divider, but it's also the great revealer. It reveals the hatred of man, and it reveals the hatred of man for God and the love of God for man. And at the cross, sin is seen at its worst, but God is seen at his best. It reveals the rebellion of man, and it reveals the obedience of Christ. It reveals what the wicked hands of sinners did to the wonderful hands of the Savior. Peter said in Acts 2.23, in his first great sermon on the day of Pentecost, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified him. Stephen in Acts 7, uh, given his testimony before he was stoned, he said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. And so Stephen was very clear and he was very bold to tell the religious crowd that the cross offended them. The cross was a great revealer. It revealed their hearts. And they wanted to put Jesus to death. And they did put him to death. So the cross reveals the day of man's greatest crime. 
and the day of God's greatest compassion. No more wicked deed was ever done to a totally innocent and pure and holy and righteous man. Man at his very worst and God at his very best. It's the great revealer. But it's also the great offender. In Galatians 5 and 11, Paul said, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So what's Paul saying here? Well, the church at Galatia, uh, they were brought up in the Jewish religion and Judaism with all the rites and the rituals and all of that. But then they became believers in Christ and they came into this tremendous freedom, wonderful freedom they had in Christ. You know, all those rites and rituals were burden to them, it was bearing them down but suddenly they had this great freedom in grace in Christ and in his gospel but then Judaizers come in there's those who come in and say well it's okay being a Christian but if you're going to be a real Christian then you're going to have to obey all the laws of Moses and all the rites and rituals of the Old Testament, you're going to have to continue in them and, and whenever Paul speaks about circumcision here, although it was an actual thing, but he's actually using this as the summation of all the rites and rituals. And this was the most important, this was the most Jewish thing to do is to be circumcised. And so what the Judaizers were saying, you know, you know, if man's going to come in to, to the, to, and receive the gospel, even if they're Gentiles receiving the gospel, they're going to have to be circumcised. They're going to have to obey all the laws of Moses and all the rites and rituals. And Paul hated that because he knew the bondage that they were under in the past and the freedom they have in Christ now. You know, there's only two things Christians are obligated to do. Two things, to be water baptized and to break bread at the communion. Just two things. Not all those rites and rituals in the Old Testament, they're gone. And so they were offended because of this freedom that men had through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross offends. Do you understand that right now as we speak, in 2021, all across China, the president of China, who made himself president for life, he has designated that Christian crosses and churches must be removed. And even if people has a cross up in their home, has to be replaced with a picture of himself. Because the cross offends. It offends. And he's trying to change Christianity to be more communistic. So remove the signs and symbols of Christianity, particularly the cross, to remove it of church buildings all over the land. That's what they're doing right now. You know, I was thinking that just two or three years ago, even as soon as that, remember those Islamic radicals, the ISIS people, who the Roman all over Syria and Iraq and those Middle Eastern countries and North Africa, and they were killing Christians. And they were tearing down and exploding churches and tearing down crosses and, and, and crucifying some Christians when they found them and cut off their heads. And terrible things were done because they hated, it, particularly the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was such an offense to them. And the irony, of course, is that in Islam, that Jesus is a great prophet. He's called Isa in Arabic. 
and he's in the Quran and he's held as a great prophet. And, and Islam believes that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and they believe that he went to heaven. And they also believe that he's coming back one day to defeat Antichrist and his forces. They believe that. But they don't believe that he was the son of God. They don't believe that he's the savior of the world. They don't believe even that God had a son. That's blasphemy to them. They don't believe in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus is the savior of the world. They just do not believe that even though they honor him as a prophet. But of course, Muhammad is their greatest prophet. He's the seal of all of the prophets, they say. But you know, whenever they speak of the prophet Muhammad, they say, peace be upon him. But if they speak about Jesus, they also say, peace be upon him. But they do not treat him as the son of God, and they do not accept the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in America... Many years ago in the 60s, one woman, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, in 1963, she organized and, and began a, a group called American Atheists that grew and grew and grew. And having the power of that and all the ability she had to speak, uh, she eventually got prayer banned in all schools across America. In fact, she used her son, John Murray O'Hare, as the plaintiff, and it went to the very Supreme Court of America who struck it down that prayer should be given in, in schools in America, and she won her case. Ironically, that young son, many, many years later, when he was a, a middle-aged man, gave his life to Christ and became a, quite a conservative believer in Christ, quite a conservative Christian at that. But she got... a. She got prayer and school banned. And now there's other groups and they're trying to get the Ten Commandments banned from all public buildings, particularly courts, to get, to get the Ten Commandments that were in courts to get them pulled down in case it influenced people, they said. <laughs> what better influence could you have than the Ten Commandments? In fact, if people obeyed them more, they'd be less in court. But that's because they hate Christianity and they hate the cross. And in fact, they're secularists and they're humanists in America. And what they would love to do is to ban all religious uh, signs and symbols, and especially the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is an offense to man. It offends man's pride. The cross tells him that he is guilty of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was his sins that put Jesus on the cross. Now that offends men. That offends men. It tells them that all his own righteousness is filthy rags in God's sight. Now man doesn't want to hear that. Man says, well, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I, I'm not that bad. Yes, we are that bad. And that's why Jesus had to come and die for our sins because we were literally that bad that we could not, in fact, save ourselves. It's offense to man's pride. It's offense to man's religion. You know, unless a man's religion, unless at the heart of it is what Christ did on the cross, unless at the heart of his religion is the merits of Christ's work on the cross, as far as God's concerned, that religion is worthless. 
It's completely unacceptable to God. So that becomes an offense to the religious mind. You know, religious people love their religion. They really love their religion. And one of the reasons why they love their religion is because they can measure themselves and measure others by themselves with their religion and how well they perform and how well they do with their religion, how dedicated they are to their religion. And so they, they can measure themselves by that thinking that that will please God. But unless it's honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, unless it's centered on the cross of Christ, then God will not accept it. And that offends man's religion. You know, the Pharisees, the scribes in Jesus' day were the most religious people, weren't they? You know, and they, they obeyed the law to write to the minutiae of the law. You know, they, 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 not only were they content with the Ten Commandments, which no man can fully keep, but not only that, but they had all these other laws that they circled the Ten Commandments to, to save the Ten Commandments, to make sure man won't break them. And you know, over the years, the laws grew and grew and the rabbis kept adding on more laws. And today there are 613 laws for by the Ten Commandments. 613 laws. 248 positive laws, things that you have to do. 365 negative laws, things that you can't do. Imagine trying to keep 613 laws. That's why Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, you, you put burdens on men's shoulders they cannot bear and you won't even lift one hand finger to help them. You're a bunch of hypocrites, he said. You can't even keep them yourselves. <sighs> you know, Jesus loved to burst the religious bubble, didn't he? Especially when it came to the Sabbath. You know, there was a law for the Sabbath that God gave to Moses for them to keep. But they kept adding to that more and more. Uh, you know, it got to the place that was ridiculous. And Jesus, you remember the time Jesus, he, he put mud on a man's eyes and then told him to go wash in the pool? You know, he, just putting mud on his eyes to the, to the religious Jew, that, that constituted work. And it was on the Sabbath day. Jesus deliberately did that on the Sabbath day. He could have just spoken and healed his eyes. He could have just touched them and healed them. But he made a little mud pie and put it on his eyes. So that constituted work in their eyes. And they criticized him for that. And then one day he was standing in the synagogue and he saw a woman who was bowed over. And he called her forward. And he laid his hands on her. And she immediately straightened up. And the ruler of the synagogue complained. And he says... Don't come on the Sabbath to be healed, because to him that was work. And Jesus said, you're a hypocrite, he said. He says, which one of you having a donkey or an ox that wanted a drink, would you not list that ox or donkey and take him for a drink on the Sabbath day? He says, how much more this woman, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed? You see how hypocritical that was to Jesus. It's offense to man's religion. It's an offense to man's philosophy, the cross is. Because you cannot rationalize the cross, you can't intellectualize it, you can only accept it by faith. It's all you can do. There's no rational explanation for it. There's a spiritual one, but not a rational one, not a logical one. 
It was against what they believed, the Jews and the Greeks. Uh, let me just read here just a portion of Scripture from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. And I'm just going to read these few verses from the New Living Translation. So verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said, I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy human wisdom and discard their most brilliant ideas. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made them all look foolish and has shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save all who believe. God's ways seem foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven to prove it's true. And it is foolish to the Greeks because they believe only what agrees with their own wisdom. Paul says man cannot find God by human wisdom alone. Can't be done. It's got to be by faith. Now human wisdom is good. A lot of good comes from human wisdom. But when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to being saved, when it comes to being the reason why we're here on this earth, when it comes to be the purpose of life, then it's nonsense, they talk. Absolute nonsense, Paul says. And in fact, in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, let me read just a few verses again in the New Living Translation, reading from verse 4. I'm telling you this so that no one will be able to deceive you with persuasive arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I'm very happy because you're living as you should and because of your strong faith in Christ. And now, just as you have accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to live in obedience to him. Let your roots grow down into him and draw up nourishment from him so you will grow in faith, strong and vigorous in the truth you were taught. Let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all that he has done. Listen to what he says now. Don't let anyone lead you astray with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the evil powers of this world and not from Christ. In other words, all of the nonsense that man talks about when it comes to God and heaven and hell and the cross and new life in Christ and the reason for us being here and the purpose of our life, they talk nonsense. They may be the smartest person in the world intellectually, but when it comes to spiritual things, unless they're entering Christ, unless they're born again of God's spirit, then they talk nonsense. That's what Paul's saying. And he says, don't get caught up in it, have nothing to do with it at all. The cross is offense to man's philosophy, it's an offense to man's religion, it's an offense to man's pride, it's an offense to man's philosophy. If the cross is not an offense, why do men resist it? They resist it because of offense. The cross is the great meeting place. God wanted to meet with man Man needed to meet with God. But how can a holy God be reconciled to a sinful man? 
a means of reconciliation was needed and a place of reconciliation was needed also. Now in the Old Testament, the means was the blood of a sacrificial lamb and the place was the mercy seat in the holiest of holies where the blood was sprinkled. But the problem with that was that that only covered men's sins for another year. And then they had to do it the next year and the next year and there ever after. In the New Testament, the means of reconciliation was the blood of Christ and the place was Calvary. The place was the cross of our Lord Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 9, and again I'll read from the New Living Translation. So Hebrews chapter 9, reading from verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that great perfect sanctuary in heaven, not made by human hands and not part of this created world. Once for all time he took blood into that most holy place, but not the blood of goats and calves. He took his own blood and with it he secured our salvation forever. For under the old system, the Old Testament, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ritual defilement. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify your hearts from deeds that lead to death so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, God offered himself to God, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. This is why he is the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people so that all who are invited can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins that they had committed under the first covenant. And if you were to read the next chapter, you would see this was once for all. Jesus made one sacrifice for all and once for all sat down at the right hand of the Father and that's where he is today. Holman Hunt, the great English artist, in 1870, on his second trip to the Holy Land, he was inspired to paint this marvelous painting called The Shadow of Death. It took him three years to complete it. You can Google it. You can see it. Now, don't Google it while I'm preaching. You can Google it afterwards. And I, I encourage you to do it. And in this painting, he depicts, depicts Christ as a young man in the carpenter shop. And he's working away. And then he, he stretches himself. And as he stretches himself, he puts up his two hands like this. And as he does that, a shaft of light comes through the window. And it casts his shadow on the back wall. And on that wall, there is a beam that's running across it with tools in it. And for all, it looks like he's been nailed to that beam. And his mother Mary is sitting on the floor of the carpenter shop. She's tidying up. And you see her looking up at the shadow of death. And what Holman Hunt was portraying here, that even then in the carpenter shop, Jesus is a young man. He was living under the shadow of death, the shadow of the cross. It's a wonderful painting. You should look it up. And so the cross is a great, great meeting place. The thief met Jesus on the cross. At the last moment, he had that opportunity. 
and he met with Christ. And Christ saved his eternal soul. It's a great changing place. Titus 2.14 Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. It's a great changing place. Your life is changed forever when you meet Christ. When you accept what Jesus has done for you on the cross and you bow the knee of your heart to him, your life is changed forever. The death of Christ not only redeems men and recreates men, but also reconciles men back to God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor reviters, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he said, And such were some of you. But now you were washed, but now you were sanctified, but now you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But such were some of you. Did you notice that? But such were some of you. You know, when you read that list, you'll see that people are saying today, well, you know, this is the way I was born. This is the way God made me. I was born this way. I can't change. Evidently, Paul didn't believe that. Paul says, such were some of you, but now, you see, you're changed. Now you're sanctified. Now you're saved. You're born again of God's Spirit. I remember one night my wife inviting me to a church service. Uh, she was born again. She was saved. She was going to a great church. And I had promised her many times I would go, and at the last minute I would refuse to go, and that irked her somewhat. And then she would come home and she was bright again because she'd been to the house of God and that then irked me, that annoyed me. So this was going on for quite a while. But then one night she says, David, would you, would you come to church because my pastor was watching a program from England today. It was one of those kind of magazine programs at one o'clock, you know, where they invite guests to speak about their story. And she says, there was this 60s pop star who became a believer and my pastor's invited him over this weekend to come and give his testimony. Would you come? And I thought, well, yeah, I'll go to that because I'll not be convicted. It'll just be some old pop star giving his testimony and singing some songs and that'll be okay. It'll be an easy night for me as a sinner. I'll not really be convicted. Boy, was I ever wrong. I mean, I never, that night I went, I never felt conviction like it in all of my life. And sure enough, he got up and he sang his songs and he gave his testimony. I can't remember what his testimony was. can't remember one song he sang. All I could remember was the Holy Spirit was so moving me that I couldn't wait till that meeting was over until I gave my life to Christ. And that night I gave my life to the Lord Jesus. That night I was saved. That was 48 years ago, last month. 48 years ago. I can tell you, it's never been the same. My life was changed forever that night in that church building. I walked out a different man than I had walked in. And I had prayed a simple prayer of, of repentance and coming to Jesus. And as soon as I did it, I was changed forever and a day. 
You know, a few years ago there, my wife and I, we were visiting our daughter in the Philippines. I was sitting in her home one night and I was thinking about this because a man said to me, did you ever tell that guy that you get saved? I says, no, I never seen him. Hadn't seen him before, never seen him since. Never any contact. And I began to think about that. And so I, I checked up the website. And sure enough, he had, a, he had a website, but it was so old. I mean, it was just, he hadn't been on that for years. And I thought, do you know what? Half the word's on Facebook. I'll, I'll just type his name on Facebook. And sure enough, his name came up on Facebook. Uh, and I mean, it was recent because just like an hour before that, he had posted something. So I did the messenger part, the private part, and I told him exactly what happened and how that he had come to Belfast and he had given his testimony. And that night I become a believer in Christ and I was his only convert. I was the only one that, that weekend that gave my life to Christ. And I told him that and I says, I'm a pastor now for years. My, my daughter's a missionary in the Philippines. Just wanted you to know that. And I said, I don't know whether you're going to church or not or what your life is like, but I just wanted you to know that. You know, within an hour, he, he, he wrote back to me privately. And he says, that's amazing. He says, I, I'm so blessed that you told me that because he'd probably long since forgotten about it. I'm so blessed you told me that. Now, checking out his website uh, or his Facebook, I'm not sure that he's going to church. I'm not sure he's even walking with the Lord to tell you the truth. But he was at that time and for me, that was a divine appointment. That was the night. That was the night. To get me to that service, that was the night I went. And that was the night I got saved. And that was the great change that came into my life. And many of you are listening to me today. You have a testimony of the change that Christ has made through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, it's the great deciding place. The cross is the place of decision that affects our whole destiny, our whole eternal future. The cross is the place. 2 Peter 3.9, Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Long-suffering, very patient. For 2,000 years, God has been pleading, 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 waiting, waiting, waiting for us to come to him, for us to make that decision, to make that choice, to come to the foot of the cross of his son, to give our lives and to be saved and born again. And he's been so, I'm glad he was patient with me. He put up with my nonsense. You know, my biggest regret when I got saved, I wish I'd have done it years before that. Years. I wasted years of my life. If you're listening to me today and you're not saved, don't you waste another moment of your life. Give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to the cross today and bow before him in your heart and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. And you'll be changed forever. Your life will never be the same. I'll finish with this. Holman Hunt, probably the most famous painting he ever did was The Light of the World. And it depicts Jesus with a lantern and it's evening time. And he's standing at a, an old wooden door and you see the weeds is growing up and he's knocking on that door. But if you look closely, there's no handle on the outside. 
the handle's on the inside. And he's wanting that door to be opened. It's been closed a long, long time. And he's wanting it to be opened for them to invite him in. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and I will dine with him and he with me. Has he been knocking at the door of your heart for a long time? Why did you open the door today? Why didn't you come to Christ today? And I promise you this Easter time will be the best Easter you've ever had. You'll understand things about Christ and the gospel that you never knew before if you receive him today. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you're not a believer today, I know that most of you are, but if you're watching for some reason or other, you've tuned into this today or you've heard it later on, you've just heard it on a CD, then today, today could be your day. This could be your moment to receive Christ. So let me pray. And you pray with me today and receive Christ as your Savior. Let's pray together. Lord God, I come before you today and I realize I'm a sinner, that I am lost. I am without hope in this world unless I come to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, God, I do come to the Lord Jesus Christ and I ask forgiveness, ask for cleansing from my sins. I, I want to turn away from this life and receive Christ as my Savior and begin a new life in Jesus. So help me today. I'm sorry for my sins. And I want Jesus to cleanse me today. Save my eternal soul. Make me fit for your heaven. I give you my life right now. And in mercy, accept it, Lord Jesus. And I give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God willing, we want to see you again uh, next Sunday and we'll continue talking about the things, the events around the cross. But then the following Sunday, which is Easter Sunday, then I, I encourage you to come out again to the house of the Lord. There's plenty of room for you. There's two services. You choose whatever one you're going to come to and spread yourselves out and sit in your bubble, whatever. Do what we have been doing to mitigate against this. And, uh, and let's be together again and see each other's faces. It, it makes a difference just to be around each other and, and to see each other and just to speak across to each other. That would be great, all right? So Lord bless you. God willing, we'll see you next week.